to this, you're listening to the free version. This podcast is completely ad-free and only possible through listener support. That sounds like a standard line, but it's true. It takes time and care to put this together, and without patrons, we won't be able to carve out the time to do this. So if you enjoy this podcast and would like to see it continue, please visit patreon.com interdependence and subscribe, where you'll get access to our most recent conversations, as well as an archive of full-length past episodes. Thank you for listening. Hi, Hi Jacob. Jacob. <laughs> How's it going? Pretty good. Pretty good. Enjoying my afternoon in New York. It's uh, gray skies outside, but it's calm and nice and wintry. So, yeah, I'm it having seems, a good day. It seems like you're, you're fully acclimatized if you're if you're cool with it being a, a dark and winter. <laughs> yeah, I hear that's the first stage. Next year, apparently, I'm supposed to hate it, but I'm still got the novelty of my first New York Delhi about it. So, <laughs> I'm going to breathe that in as much as I can. Is this your first, like, for real, for real winter? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I'm from Australia originally. So having to even learn the day-to-day of, oh, you need a really thick coat. And then you take that <laughs> off when you get inside. And, like, you need multiple layers. And it's it's literally, I'm a, I'm a kid that's looking at snow for the first time because I more or less am. <laughs> I'm, I'm, like, the guy that's, like, running around, like, kicking snow up. Whoa, this is crazy. I'm looking at everyone else in, like, dreary and just trying to like, go to their way. <laughs> I'm like, are you serious? You're not seeing this? this- it's adorable, and it will wear off. <laughs> I, I grew up in, except, like, a very, very warm place and didn't see snow for a very long time. And there's a photograph somewhere. I was really looking forward to snow because, obviously, like, when you watch kids' movies and stuff, like, the snow snowman mm-hmm. or whatever it's all this kind of magical thing and there's a fo- there's a photograph somewhere in a family album of me being dropped in snow for the first time and absolutely losing like hating so painful and cold and miserable i got a family photo on our fridge at my mom's house of matt making the most hilarious face oh, yeah. on a roller coaster yes. where my whole family is <laughs> smiling and having a great time and We'll have to make, yeah, make sure you add that photo to the um, the podcast transcript so everyone can see that. I think it's important information for everyone to see. It's really, oh. it's it's really an, an awful picture. So we've already we've already established it originally from Australia, and of course, you're one of a, a limited, rare group of people who are a a second repeat guest on on Interdependence. But but for those who maybe missed the first time where we where we met to discuss Zora, mm-hmm. would you mind giving a brief introduction to yourself, please? Sure. Yeah, my name's Jacob, one of the co-founders of Zora. Uh, Zora is the NFT marketplace protocol for the internet. And we're essentially trying to build public infrastructure that allows anyone to you know, buy, sell, exchange their NFTs completely free and on infrastructure that lets people build their own marketplaces and curated galleries, apps, all sorts of crazy stuff. We're about two years in. And the first time that I was on Interdependence, I think we were, we were on the similar path, but we we're playing around in kind of the blend between physical world and digital. So we we're building marketplace infrastructure, but it was like, hey, what if you use cryptocurrency to let people form like secondary markets for a painting or for a pair of sneakers or any cultural artifact in the physical world? And I think as we've been speed running 
the crypto ecosystem and thinking further and further, we made the switch to focus on purely virtual infrastructure and tooling. So less focused on, hey, how do we ship these like pair of socks that are worth a bunch of money and redeemable <laughs> for tokens and more focused on what does the most simple and pure protocol look like that accounts for like every use case. Zora's about two years old now. Before Zora, I worked at Coinbase for about three and a half years on the design product team, doing all sorts of crazy crypto things. And then, yeah, before that, I was a college student messing around trying to build like DAOs and token experiments on Ethereum in 2015, 2016. And even before that, I was trying to do it on top of Bitcoin on systems called Counterparty and Colored Coins, which were even earlier creating your own tokens for whatever experience. Yeah, it's been a while. Uh, I think this is my 10th year in crypto officially, which is like a completely crazy thing to say. <laughs> it sounds surreal, but yeah, I guess like I, I've been obsessed with crypto ever since I realized it gave anyone the power to create a, a value system for whatever they want. Um, and yeah, I've just kind of been, haven't really exited that rabbit hole. <laughs> Here I am today building it still. And yeah, now we're talking, talking Zora and Independence Round 2. <laughs> The, the concept of time in this space is so abstract and there's almost no time to fully uh, parse it. The one thing I will say, though, that's actually cool is that you all at Zora were one of the first people we spoke to, I think, about crypto on this podcast, which would have been almost two years ago. Oh, yeah. And mm -hmm. that discussion that discussion was in advance of obviously the 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 nuts level of interest in this space i, I remember yeah. having that conversation with your trying to introduce some of these ideas trying to introduce some of the ideas as you said before about bridging physical and digital stuff and so obviously mm -hmm. like the changes and your change in focus have, have probably been informed by the fact that in the intervening months yeah everyone in the world has an opinion about the space which is Right. I think we're we're all in agreement, like incredibly exciting and, and positive. We were just talking yesterday. I don't think in our lifetime, I don't think I've I've seen such a wide public discourse about art, period. Which right. is an an incredible thing uh to mm -hmm. be able to reflect on, as much as there's some kind of fallbacks and, and like some tension there too. One thing you missed there is you, you also publish and and given that it was a couple of years since we first spoke to pull apart the idea of NFTs and like tinkering with new kind of value systems and new kind of economies. You published a, a great essay called My Collectible Ass. We discussed that on the last podcast. Right? Did we discuss that I on did. the last oh, podcast? That, that essay that essay was published by Mackenzie Walk, that one. That particular no, that was, excuse me, but your your response. What was the name of your uh, uh, of, of, Oh, I had a couple. So there was one which was the playful paradigm shift, which kind of charted out and define NFTs. I think that was 2018. And then maybe the one you're talking about is uh, what is crypto media, I think was the title. There we go. Which feels like, and that feels like a dated title now. It should have just been like, what are NFTs? But, you know, <laughs> in search of trying to come up with new language all the time, almost to a fault. But yes, what is crypto media was the, I think the essay at the time that we were talking about that, yeah, referenced Mackenzie Walk's work. Exactly. And so the, what that essay did, which I think was a conceptual leap that needed to happen in the space was establish or reconcile this difficulty of saying, how do you create something valuable that is ostensibly free for everybody to consume? This mm -hmm. and over the past huge conceptual leap for yeah. people. I see a lot of people on Twitter criticizing this idea of digital scarcity and these yeah. kind of ideas. And so a lot of people haven't made that kind of conceptual leap yet. And I often point people to your essay, actually, because I think it really clearly lays it out. Exactly. Yeah. And, and and it's one of those conceptual leaps that once you get it, opens up a whole world of possibility and equally gives people some armor, I think, 
to defend or think through some of the critiques that have been flooding into the space, namely the one that Holly mentioned, this idea of digital scarcity doesn't really mm-hmm. make that much sense once you get your head around what the thesis of crypto media or NFTs more broadly is. And mm-hmm. the, 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 the occasion for us wanting to have you back on is that you just recently published an essay coining a term hyperstructures that hopefully over the course of however long we're going to talk right now, <laughs> we, can, we can establish that meme in people's minds because reading through it does also create a very clear and useful distinction in terms of understanding what kind of infrastructure is being built, particularly from your side. Yes, hopefully. That's the goal. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny now, like reflecting on the, the what is crypto media essay, because I think like what, what I was trying to do is I, when I was talking about NFTs and on a bunch of calls and you know, going to meetups and just talking to people, it, it was like, how do you ground this in something like what, what problem is actually being solved here and what's the net new? And I, I like explaining things by analogy. And the one, the one kind of example that I felt really resonated and helped it click where it's like, hey, like, why is it that the Mona Lisa can be put on an off-white t-shirt? It can be photographed millions of times, remixed, redistributed, like it lives in the public domain. Why is it that every time that duplication is happening, the Mona Lisa is becoming more valuable and it's individually ownable, right? It's like the best kind of analog example of an NFT where it's like individually ownable, but public domain and freely remixable and shareable in every single way. And the problem that that solves is like the 25 year problem we've had on the internet of like information has always been at odds with wanting to be free and wanting to be valuable at the same time. And the web two paradigm of restricting access to that information for pay-per-view, pay-per-listen or putting it behind an ad wall has trained us to go, oh, restricting access equals value. And then NFTs completely just shatter that and just go, no, no, no. Like the further you share it, the more value that accrues to this provably ownable and original instance in the form of the NFT. It's wild to how that thesis is bore out. Cause I, I have to I have to concede, even like thinking back to that time, I was like, it's only going to be a matter of time before people come in and gating access with these NFTs, which of course we've seen right. to some extent occur with certain communities, right? So like you also mm-hmm. have the art can function as this kind of public display. And mm-hmm. but if you own a board ape, you get access to the Discord. So it's, it operates right. both as like an advertisement for a gate, but the art itself is 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 there public. But I, but one thing that's been striking to me is just how few experiments we've seen that 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 differ from from your thesis. Pretty much everybody has bought into that idea that an NFT is something that should be available to everybody. I can't think of too many examples, too many examples that, that contradict that. So yeah. There's one protocol that this is totally tangential. There's one protocol, I can't remember the name, where they're trying to make it so that certain aspects of the NFT are only viewable to the owner. Oh really? Yeah. Which <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I think that's what people realize. They go, Oh, what if we did gate it? And then you realize it's oxymoronic. It's oh, let's restrict the explicit superpower in this thing. <laughs> yeah, I think people immediately realize it. And then it's what's cool is I think now we're starting to understand and experiment with the depths of the functionality of NFTs where it's okay, great, the media or the artwork or the content associated with the NFT is really consumable. But now as the holder of these things, I get an increasing number of on-chain rights and functionality that only I can access because I hold it. And I think like we're super early there and there's like a bunch of experimentation happening, but that that's the phase we're heading into. It's like, okay, now what can you start to do with these things on top of consume the content, which is already like a huge 
leap in how we create and value information on the internet, which is great. So, yeah. yeah, it's wild. It's it's yeah. We we were joking before the call. It's kind of like in in my mind, it's like a psychedelic explosion <laughs> of possibilities mm-hmm. of audio stories. Where it's like once you get get over these initial conceptual hurdles, you're like, okay, well, there's all of the work to do now. Exactly. You, you pick a direction. There's so much there to be explored and also such a growing group of people who are down for that yeah uh, as a debrief we've we've spoken obviously personally in between this time but as a debrief from the last time we invited you on the podcast it's yeah time to be alive seriously this is it's mm-hmm. it's pretty it's pretty wild where we're at now the, the the opportunity here of course is with this new essay hyperstructures to establish mm-hmm. what exactly a hyperstructure is And so I'm going to put it to you before we get into the particular details to maybe give a high level overview of what the essay is, what a hyperstructure is, and maybe also why now, like why, why write that piece? Yeah, I guess it it was an organic process. It was similar to the, the reason that I wrote the, what is crypto media essay, which was, I found myself having the same conversation over and over again when explaining the Zora approach to how we're building our marketplace purely as a protocol because right now like when we think about building marketplaces or any type of like platform we have a a, everyone has the same view it's like it's a platform that's centrally controlled which means that there is a company that has like power over this thing and requires maintenance and revenue to keep operating and to be sustainable over time and with crypto that you actually don't need that paradigm at all. Like there's this very, like the, with protocols in particular. So a hyperstructure put simply, it's a, it's a crypto protocol that is unstoppable. It is permissionless. It is free and it is community owned. And I would argue that all of the, everything from unstoppable onwards is empowered by the unstoppability. And this is where I was like, Oh wait, this is actually net new because I actually couldn't find an analogy for a system like this. So building on like the infrastructure term, it's like traditional infrastructure, be it like roads, the internet, sewage systems, train tracks, whatever it is, for that infrastructure to keep operating over time, it does require very constant maintenance and operation to sustain its functionality. So it's like we don't maintain the roads, they fall apart. Same thing for a train track or pipes or the internet, whatever. So there does need to be some essentially revenue or subsidy to and a, and a trusted operator to ensure that that infrastructure keeps functionally functioning as designed forever or for as long as it's needed with a crypto protocol. It's pretty gnarly because that is absolutely not true. Like the power of a blockchain is like the way that we've deployed the Zora protocol, or for example, Uniswap, which is an exchange. Once you deploy that protocol, the team that built it, we could disappear. Our website could turn off. We cease to exist on the planet. The Zora protocol will run exactly as designed for as long as the Ethereum blockchain exists. So it's essentially, that is like so hot. It's such a simple statement, but it's like the Zora protocol will run designed exactly as planned for as long as like the blockchain exists is a pretty crazy statement because now you can design systems that don't require maintenance or trusted operation to operate one and two requires no ongoing revenue or extraction to operate itself. So you can just essentially launch these pieces of infrastructure that just work, rely on the blockchain they're built on and can just can serve as a, as a public good in kind of the truest sense. 
And what that does as a medium, as like a builder, allows you to then make these really cool decisions of what admin functionality should we build in or not. In the hyperstructure, I say I advocate for basically no admin functionality at all. You can create a neutral piece of infrastructure that can just be served and utilized by any actor or participant or platform or app or protocol in the system without prejudice. Obviously, that is both like exciting and a terrifying prospect, but it is provably neutral. So no one can deplatform anyone from Azure protocol or for a Uniswap protocol, for example, like two kind of landmark examples of hyperstructures. And then because it requires no trusted operation or maintenance to keep running, I argue there's no need for value extraction at system-wide level. So there's no protocol-wide fee. But there is an opportunity to build in incentives for platforms and participants to basically have incentives or business models on top of it. So in the essay, I say there's no extractive fees, there are expansive fees, which basically means because someone can always default to the free version of the protocol, for you to accrue value as someone utilizing the protocol, you have to provide value that someone is willing to pay you. And that is honored and built into the protocol for itself. So the example in the Zora protocol is the finders fee, which is basically, hey, I'm not choosing to list this NFT myself. I'm going to pay, I'm going to basically set like a 5% fee and whichever platform or curator or participant in the ecosystem finds the winning bidder or the buyer for this piece, they will earn that 5% reward. And if they don't find it, then, you know, that 5% isn't paid. And there's also like another version, which is like a curator fee or a host fee, which is like, hey, I'm going to list this with interdependence because this artwork resonates with their community and they're going to curate it and contextualize it and I'm going to pay them for that. And that's happening in the context where it's like, hey, I can always do this for free myself, but I acknowledge the value that interdependence is providing me, for example. So this is like an expansive fee. (laughs) That was one where it's we're dog fooding and trying to understand, like with the the earlier version of Zora had no notion of expansive fees. And it's it's not enough for it to be free. There there has to be incentives for other people to build on top of it and utilize it. So (laughs) there was a lot of trial by fire that went into these learnings where it's okay, being default free and provably free forever is great, but what's the incentive for ostensibly competing platforms to build on the same piece of shared infrastructure? And this expansive fee model is proving out to be like a solution to that. And then, yeah, I guess there's a whole bunch of dimensions that come from it, but to restate it, yeah, hyperstructure is a crypto protocol that can is unstoppable, permissionless, free, and then community-owned, which unlocks the value piece, which is maybe where things get a little interesting. But that's the that's the kind of cliff note summary, I guess, in however many words I just rambled on for the past five minutes. <laughs> no, that, that's really great. I'm hoping that we can break it down. I actually was taking notes while you were speaking, and then I see that you also have it bullet-pointed in your essay as well. Some of these ideas, unstoppable, permissionless, community-owned, mm-hmm. free and valuable, expansive fees. So maybe we could break it down because I feel like it still is a pretty complex concept for a lot of people who maybe some of these terms yep. might not be so familiar. So maybe we could just start with the unstoppable piece, because I feel like that's already like maybe confusing for people. When you say that it's unstoppable, what are the kind of like infrastructures that need to continue running in order for something um, to be unstoppable? Because there are things that have to be functioning in order (laughs) for the whole thing. Yeah, exactly. So this is where it's the, so it's unstoppable because it's built on something like the Ethereum blockchain, which is like, it's a marvel in 
computer science, like what same thing with the, the Bitcoin blockchain, where they basically have 100% uptime for many years. And even the world's best centralized servers and operators, say in AWS, like they get to like 99.999% uptime, their blockchains can outperform because of the way that the networks are constructed. And what this means in practice is, and I'll use an example here. For example, like Coinbase is a centralized cryptocurrency exchange. The centralization offers a bunch of great features, like it's free to trade on, there's like low transaction fees, and it's a quick and easy first-time user experience. But when they go down, the entire market goes down with it. Versus mm-hmm. something like a Uniswap, by nature of it being a protocol on the Ethereum blockchain, does not have any downtime. Like The market is always accessible for anyone who's directly integrating with the blockchain, and that's because there's no central operators or in, or like uh, servers required that maintain the market themselves. A more NFT-focused example is like similarly with OpenSea, like the market lives in centralized databases, which they own and control and operate. So if those databases go down, the market goes down with it, which means that everything essentially stops until they come back up. Versus uh, Azora, for example, the market functionality lives entirely on chain, which means if the Zora website goes down or any plat- other platform built on the protocol goes down, you can always default in the worst case to access that market through an ether scan or through the blockchain directly because the blockchain's essentially always... Which is a great response, right? Because I've definitely had in conversations, one of the favorite kind of rebuttals that people love to throw at some of projects in, let's say, the Ethereum space is be like, what? Why do you need a blockchain? You could just do this on. You could sell NFTs on a on a private database. Why would you right. do that? One of the easiest, I think, rebuttals to that is like, why would you want to maintain that? Like, yeah. in order to the idea that you don't have to think about the, that maintenance and you don't have to worry about uptime is it's it's an it's an easy thing to like skim over in polite conversation, but that's huge. It's huge. Yeah. Why would you build something that you then had to go and maintain and, and assume all of that kind of time and financial burden for when you could just work with an unstoppable blockchain that everybody's working? On? Yeah. Uh, uh, so I think it, it's worth throwing in there because I hear that comment a lot. Yes. And I think like when you layer in the permissionless aspect in there as well, it's even more powerful because, for example, uh, Coinbase or an OpenSea, they can deplatform things from their market due to whatever reason it could be oh, this is just, this breaches our own terms of service or there's be a DMCA or for a jurisdictional reason, we can't add it. So they have administrative authority and the ability to essentially like push people off their own infrastructure because they control it versus a permissionless protocol like this. It's built in a way where it's like anyone can use it. So that deplatforming risk is non-existent because it's designed in a way to be neutral and just operate regardless of what's happening on top of it. So for like kind of teams or or, or entities or groups who are like, okay, like we have this systemic risk building our entire operation on top of a centralized version of this because you can be platformed at any point, kind of like Twitter went through the whole thing where they had one of the richest developer ecosystems in the world. And then they're like, actually, you know what, this isn't good for our business. All of these API integrations are gone. Therefore, your apps and businesses you've been building on top of us for the past couple of years are gone with it. That's something that you get a guarantee by the blockchain, which is at least in the hyperstructure context where it's like, because there are none of these controls built in, you cannot be deplatformed. 
because it's this essentially neutral and unstoppable piece of functionality that's just available. So those two things together sound very simple, but it's that's crazy. (laughs) No, that's huge. I think when a lot of people think of deplatforming, they think of somebody saying something um, really negative online and then uh, Mm -hmm. that kind of example. But what you bring up here with the kind of API and businesses that are built upon that information, no longer having access to that and killing business models. If you're a developer, that's a huge liability for whatever kind of company you're trying to build. Exactly. And it's, that's part of the reason we built it in the way we have, because we went through that ourselves, where it's like we can't integrate OpenSea markets into the application we're trying to build. So it's like, that's weird, because this is the single largest market in the ecosystem that feels somewhat of a systemic risk for, for there to be that amount of, uh, it's essentially a critical piece of infrastructure that very limited building ability for anyone to build on top of it. So it's like, okay, like what are the, what's the system required that allows for open building and you know, no risk of deplatforming. And then again, permissionless and unstoppable protocol there is the answer. So yeah, sounds very simple, but huge implications in the most positive sense. Just having, just having that confidence that what you're building is still going to be around is, is, is massive. I do wonder one of the things I've, I've encountered recently, it's funny. There's a, a guy on Twitter whose Twitter I enjoy called Arkady, uh, Kukurkin, excuse me if I'm pronouncing your name wrong, Arkady, who was recently, how do I approach this? So with the recent drama around hit piece, right? Mm-hmm. You've been following this. For those who weren't following it, basically there was an organization called Hit Piece who managed to create a site based on the Spotify API. So they pulled a bunch of songs from Spotify and were then offering to mint NFTs based on those songs. They did so without inviting the permission of any of the artists who they were listing on their site. Long story short, it turned into a bit of a drama online. Understandably so, I think, because it's quite it's quite unusual for people to purport to be selling work in the name of someone who hasn't approved of the sale mm-hmm. of that work. Mm-hmm. That being said... In that conversation, I was online and being like, it's really funny how ideas of permissionless curation that I think are native to the NFT space and quite native actually to a lot of your thinking on this topic, right? This idea that Mm -hmm. if I, let's say, let's establish, if I establish permission by minting an NFT, it's quite understood that I then don't mind somebody showcasing that work in a place that I haven't seen. Like, I don't mm-hmm. mind that person who maybe acquires the work reselling that work somewhere else without my permission. Mm-hmm. That's the deal when you mint an NFT. Now, with the hit piece drama, I was kind of talking about, it's, it's funny, these fine margins, like with the hit piece drama, it did come to, to my attention that when a lot of people hear the terms unstoppable or permissionless, Mm-hmm. particularly in light of the fact that in some dark corners of crypto, there's this uh, phenomenon of like copy minting or basically yeah. ripping off people's work and selling it without their permission. The, the words unstoppable and permissionless could be misconstrued for advocating for theft or something like that. <laughs> and so I wanted to right. bring it up because you're a great person to talk to about these particular dynamics of like permission permissionlessness, curators, finders fees, as you just mentioned, maybe it's worth spending a few minutes right now establishing what exactly is meant by unstoppable and permissionless um, and how that is not advocating for, for basically. (laughs) I I mean, I guess maybe the, the, the right starting point for that is it's, it's interesting that it only took 
a day for that for hit like the the lifespan of hit piece was maybe one day or two days yeah maximum it's so just like all of the other kind of uh characteristics of the blockchain of transparency auditability openness and stuff like that meant that within the space of a day or two days this entire operation was able to basically be proven to be fraudulent and invalid market and essentially got shut down at the platform level because all of the tooling at the protocol and blockchain level was like, okay, this clearly, this, this track from Latasha or Halik clearly didn't originate from their address. Therefore, the kind of outrage that's happening on Twitter is, is verifiable because this is cryptographically not coming from those artists. Therefore, you know, this is not a valid market and we can call that out and prove it cryptographically. So it's uh, in that case, it's okay, great. The blockchain is giving us the tool set to fend off those fraudulent actors. And what would have been a terrible situation if that lasted for months or years got essentially shut down within the space of a couple of days. So yep. the, the tool set is there for the community to kind of like go through that verification process very quickly. But you are right in that if the if a fraudulent NFT is listed on a permissionless protocol, there is like essentially no recourse at the protocol level to unilaterally stop that action. There is just this, you would have to fundamentally break the blockchain itself to exercise that kind of control and go, Hey, this is a DMCA takedown, like delist it like that. Those controls do not exist at the protocol layer. But I would say that the kind of, optimistic offset is the fact that a community can very trivially verify that any given listing or action on the protocol is verifiable or can be deemed original, authentic, or coming from the artists because of everything that surrounds it. But yeah, the trade-off of neutrality is that there is no authority that can come in and stop the functionality at the base level, which is which is like a new thing. And like the the other side of the coin here because yeah, there's, there's no recourse at that protocol level. It also invites a kind of maybe cottage industry for verification. If people don't know how to do that themselves, or if they would like to have some sort of service that does that because there's no risk of the API just being shut off or disappearing. Mm -hmm. You could build a service on top of it that says, Hey, this, this service traces wallets and guarantees some provenance. Yeah, totally. Exactly. And that was one of the first things that came to mind also when talking about the hyperstructure. I feel like that that layer of, of context, that layer of context is missing and and will soon be readily available. <laughs> Just this ability of being able to say, is this a hyperstructure? Is this the artist who is this the artist who they're claiming it is? And of course, yeah, your answer there I think is 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 very congruent with my own, which is weirdly enough, the answer to many of these problems of provenance is why NFTs exist. And so mm-hmm. the ultimate the ultimate way to to resolve any of these kind of scammy hippies things is just for all those works to be minted and for it to be really, really clear where they came from and, and if the artist is involved at all. And of course, the only... But at the same time, people should be able to opt out of minting if they don't want to. Well, absolutely. I think the danger with minting as well is like... In the in the short term, it, it's also it's also associated with quite prohibitive costs for people. Okay. But once this stuff, touch some people wood, just hate blockchain and just yeah, don't well, want that, to be that, involved, and that's their prerogative. That, that's also true. Yeah, none none of this is none of this is is providing excuses for people who 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 act fraudulently in people's names. But the yeah, but but as you said, like the the kind of immune system of 
of this kind of new space managed to fight off, like the antibodies managed to fight off all the threats uh, in a very, very short period of time, which would be very, very difficult to do in in other circumstances. I just wish that had been clear in the discourse because it was like, oh, this is another example of why crypto is just a scam and everything sucks. And it's no, actually the system's working, you guys. Yeah, and, it, and I feel like it's funny, like the follow-up essay of the hyperstructure is like, okay, now we have this trustless protocol and a notion of it established. Let's now talk about the trusted platforms built on top of them because yep. right. they are trusted, they are centrally operated, and they do have the ability to take on. I think a, a general kind of idea or uh, I don't know, hypothesis or whatever is like we, we are going to progressively build reversibility and trust back into blockchains, but you can always default and exit back to the most neutral and fundamental functionality, no matter what. But in the in the kind of what you were saying about, yeah, like there, there will be this kind of cottage garden industry of people who are now building, they're able to be that trusted verifier and curator. There is actually a direct incentive for them to do because if you're building one of these trusted platforms on top of a hyperstructure, there are very explicit incentives and business models for you to do that. If you have a lot of people coming to your website because they trust your curatorial ability, your ability to authenticate. I'm not buying a scammy NFT. I'm buying something that's coming direct from the artists. And you become that point of trust at the platform layer. Like that, that is possible. And then at the platform layer, like there, there are some controls where it's like, hey, we aren't going to allow you to list an NFT with us in the future. We're going to block that ability on our platform. Feel free to use the, the, public, the public protocol. But like at our platform, we're not going to let that happen here because this is the value we're providing to our community. So it's it's not it's not just like completely wild west. It is wild west, but there there is the ability for these kind of trusted platforms to be built on top of these hyperstructures, which is like the phase we're now starting to enter into. Now that like something like Azora has been around as a protocol for a, a little over a year where it's yeah, these new institutions and platforms are able to provide that kind of trust and safety in this context and because it's built on a hyperstructure, the community has these mechanisms to default back to and verify and, and exit with their value if they really need to. So I, I, I'm not like with hyperstructures. I'm saying that like I think they're the, they're the the fundamental basis upon which a lot of these things will be built on top of. But that doesn't stop or preclude trusted platforms being built on top of hyperstructures. In fact, that's what should. That's what hyperstructures are designed for in the first place. Yeah, there's, we now have, we've got a new kind of level of the stack to discuss. It's not just platform. There's now these things below it that have their own shapes and characteristics that maybe we need a new word for platforms built on hyperstructures. But yeah, so I think that's worth calling out. We, we will have in this context. Yeah, that's a really good point. I feel like that's a nice segue to another thing that you mentioned when you were giving your overview. You brought up that it's community owned Mm -hmm. and that you were questioning what kind of admin functionality should be built in. These kind of questions. Can you just build that out a little bit for us? Because I think that's a really fascinating component to this that's genuinely new to this space. Yeah. So when designing a hyperstructure, I think the job is to make a core, core principle is like, how do you make it as credibly neutral as possible? So when we designed the Zora protocol, like we, of course, could have built in admin functionality to be like, you know what, the Zora team is able to delist de- NFT if we want to, or we can just come in and block a whole subset of addresses from ever inter- interacting with the protocol at these level or whatever. But we explicitly did not build those, that functionality in, and there is also no path for that functionality to ever be built into the protocol. So it can maintain that credible neutrality in the short term and the long term. 
But there is, I, in the kind of valuable section, it's like, what is the absolute minimum amount of ownership that you can construct that can allow value to accrue to essentially token owners of a hyperstructure? And Uniswap have done this in a primitive form, which is like the Uniswap protocol, which is facilitates like it's the largest um, decentralized exchange by a long margin, has like something like 80 to 85% market share, and it even rivals something like Coinbase now on volume. What what they have done is the DAO, so uni token holders have a fee switch, which is set to zero. And I make the case in the essay that it will always be set to zero. But the fact that the community has the option to turn it on puts it in this kind of free and valuable state. And I think the Zora team made this more explicit and legible by actually making that fee switch in NFT. And by making it an NFT, the fee switch itself is an NFT. So, and and now this is where it gets crazy. So now imagine I give you, (laughs) like, so I give you, Holly and Matt, I give you this NFT. And as the owners of this NFT, it gives you the sole right to turn on and earn fees across the entire Zora protocol. That is a tremendous amount of power. And now if that fee is set to zero, is that NFT still valuable or not? Yes or no? Of course. Of course, right? And now it's okay. (laughs) But the fact that it's an NFT makes it transferable. It means that imagine... I. I'm, a, I'm like kind of a chaotic good type character. So I was like, I, I had this idea, which was like, imagine if we listed the protocol fee switch for 15% of the uni supply, just to see what conversation happens, because now the Uniswap DAO could viably acquire the entirety of the Zora protocol for 15% of their DAO. And there's a direct path to do so because they can just buy the single NFT instead of having to figure out how to buy 51% of all Zora tokens in the network. And it highlights how it's okay. This fee switch is the only admin function owned by the Zora DAO. And essentially, I think it allows you to highlight the power of this governance right and the fact that the incentive of the community who basically has fractional ownership over that NFT, I, I would argue that the correct position of that fee switch is always zero because there's no reason to then fork and create your own version of this protocol. But simply owning that right and the threat of the fee and like making that an ownership right is similar to an NFT owner having the right to burn their NFT. It's like turning on fees, in my opinion, across the whole protocol is destructive action. But at least having that right to destroy is actually an inherent ownership that uh, like allows for value to accrue. So... Community ownership simply is, yeah, for all of the market modules created in the Zora DAO, there is a fee switch and control in the form of an NFT that is owned by the Zora DAO. And now our job over the next kind of, you know, two to three months is moving from the Zora DAO being owned and controlled by Zora Labs and being owned and controlled by the community at large with a token. So over time, it's, hey. Oh, that is so psychedelic. You really put your money where your mouth is. You're like, I'm going to put the whole protocol on the back of one NFT. It's also kind of cool though, too, because it also, the idea of there being this, it's not quite like a dead man switch or something, but it has like a similar kind of chaotic apocalyptic quality to it. 
It's almost, I, I might cut this out if it's completely inappropriate, but it's almost kind <laughs> of like, like nuclear brinkmanship or something where like, right, right, right. Mutually assured destruction. Exactly. The ability to kind of like, to deploy something so destructive has caused like decades of peace. It, well, yeah, some it, argue. well, and also it encourages open deliberation, which is interesting, right? Because the idea that somebody somewhere would have a big red button that all of a sudden could switch fees on and then nuke everything. The, the ability that that would then be owned by a large group of people and the decision-making around that and the discourse that would that would likely come around that could also create like a public record of trust around the protocol that you're actually it's, able yes. to see how people yes. are negotiating yeah. around these decisions because the decision yeah. is, the stakes are so high with that decision. It's the NFTs I've ever heard of. <laughs> yeah, shout out, to, shout out to the COVID booster shot on that one. Put me in a, like a fever dream for a day and that's literally where the eye, like that's what I did, but... It, it, it is crazy because it does it does a few things, but it, it, it gives the community something to defend. And also, in a way, it's, there is a, I published this essay, there's a bunch of kind of crypto funds or whatever, then crypto funds who have an alternative view that it's actually net good to turn on fees and extract fees will want to purchase that NFT. And I'm like, yeah. exactly. But now they have to convince the entire community to sell it to them. And now there is this real-time pricing constantly happening because it is an NFT that says, what is the value of this thing? If some mercenary group places a, a billion dollar ETH bid on this NFT, and it's literally as simple as that to sell the control, will the community say yes to that? I don't know. I would assume not because they're like, what's this mercenary group going to do? Are they just going to turn the fees on? And then interestingly, if they do turn the fees on, the community could just fork the protocol because it's entirely open source and public. They could just copy paste it and then do it themselves as a community and go, well, we're going to create the free version again, which is like, again, why I think it just stays in this state of like free. And I guess there is an asterisk on free, by the way, which is, I think, worth calling out just for the sake of rigor, which is you're paying exactly at cost. So by free, I'm saying there's no protocol-wide fee, but you, the user or the platform building on top of the protocol is basically paying per function at the precise gas cost that it, that it takes to run. So when you list on chain... Exactly, exactly. So it's, 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 it runs exactly at cost is maybe a, a better way to say that, but it, it's free in the sense that like Zora, the protocol and the DAO can't just go... All right, yeah, there's a two and a half percent fee on top of this thing that is protocol enforced. And when we're talking about fees, I think this is worth establishing, and I'm I'm also curious about this myself. When you're considering these things, are you operating under the assumption that something like Ethereum is going to be insanely cheap to use very soon? I think that's worth establishing for people, right? Because when a lot of people hear fees and they think about gas and the cost of interacting with blockchains currently, of course, in the short term, these things are actually quite can be quite expensive per transaction. When you think about this stuff, when we're talking about like unstoppable legacy, like lifelong protocols and hyperstructures right now, are you operating yep. under the assumption yep. that in the short in the short term, in a in a pretty soon uh, pretty soon we're going to be this stuff is going to be very cheap to interact with? I'm actually operate like the reason. No, I'm I'm actually thinking. Oh, I have like decent certainty that this platform in the form of Ethereum will actually exist in five years time or 10 years time. And that's, that's how I'm, that's what you're almost, that's what you're paying for as well. Yeah. So I think like there is this inherent tension where I, I don't think it would be unfair to categorize Ethereum as essentially like 
a luxury good right now where there is like a pretty decent barrier to entry to, to start using it, both for the user experience side and understanding side, and also a cost to utilize. I do think there are viable solutions and to both to be built on top of Ethereum and also the Ethereum level itself that can bring those costs down over time. But I guess it's like the way I, the reason I have why I find it compelling to be building on this as a platform in the first place is everyone throws the term around Windy, but it's like, it's like it's beat around for a really long time and proven out this functionality. And it's likely that it can continue to do that over time horizons where it's will OpenSea or Coinbase or any centralized platform be around in five years, 10 years or 25 years. I'm not sure. Will the Bitcoin blockchain or will Ethereum, like you would, if you had to bet on anything, like they would be very high up in the list of things that will probably still be around with at least their current functionality that isn't degrading, which is, which is, I think like that's, that's what you're paying for. It's like when I, when you're paying anywhere between 30 and $200 to mint an NFT, the utility you're getting back is that it's one on this public and permanent record that is universally accessible and programmable. Like you, you're, you're paying for that feature set. And I think the permanence and the fact that it's like has high confidence that it will be around in a long period of time is, or at least has a, a high probability is that's, that's the utility and um, how you weigh up the cost that you're paying. Okay. So we're going to, we're going to tackle in in the original crypto media essay, you managed to square the you managed to establish for people why something being freely accessible to everybody could mm-hmm. in fact be really valuable, bringing up the the Mona Lisa example or just the idea that of course the more people that interact with a piece of media, the more the ownership, the scarce ownership of that media yep. becomes valuable. Okay, so now we've we've got to free in the sense of a free hyperstructure protocol that that isn't shaving fees off. Mm-hmm. Why would that be more valuable for the owners of that protocol? Let's say the the, the members of the DAO who govern that protocol. Why would that yeah. be more valuable than a fee? A rent-seeking protocol. Let's 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 nail this. <laughs> yeah. So a starting starting point here is that you actually won't see. You will likely not see substantial platforms build on the protocol if there is an extraction at the protocol level. And we've seen this play out over the past year. It's like the only reason we see competing music marketplaces, gaming marketplaces, virtual worlds, curators build all on Zora is because there is there's no savings to be made by creating their own version and doing it themselves. They basically get to save all the time of effort of, of figuring out how to create a marketplace this is a protocol. And there's no extraction from them. So it's like, it's like a no brainer. There's always ability. You're like, Oh great. Like I, I can have these guarantees. I'm not going to get deplatformed. And there is an extra basically value savings I'm going to get from just doing it myself. So that's one piece. And then, well then why is it maintaining and accruing value over time in this free state? Because the greater the network effects, the greater the number of integrations, the number of platforms that are all building on the same thing, they all want to defend <laughs> the value that they're at the system that they're you know, deeply integrated into their own business. And that's why I think the community ownership piece is so important and like why we're heading in that direction because all of the platforms built on top of this aura should have a seat at the table in a very direct and trustless context of, okay, like if the you as a token holder can you know, defend the value of the, the fee switches essentially, and also have governance over a community treasury, uh, 
Zora token to then allocate to future development of the protocol and expanding the ecosystem of platforms built on top of it. Yeah, that's how it's like. I, so there's the, the zero percent unlocks the network effect and the platform integrations, and then those platforms and integrations themselves now have a seat at the table of the thing that they're deeply integrated into their system, so that the infrastructure they rely on. So yeah, it's really like a nice circular graph you could write on. It's a little reflexive, but that's the loop that gets unlocked. Because yeah, imagine like the current, if all the marketplaces then decide to turn on a fee, they might be stopping new marketplaces from joining the ecosystem because now they have an incentive to go do it themselves. So I don't think it's always in their interest to keep it at 0%. And the more widely adopted, the more valuable and important it is to defend and keep furthering that value basically as a community built on top of it. So this is this is the essential concept behind a governance token, right? That's how you would categorize these these tokens, right? You would call it a governance token? I'd call it I think this is specifically a protocol token. Because you can have because it's it's tied to very explicit and on-chain protocol rights, which in our case is the most reduced, which is just a fee switch, but I could imagine other protocols that manage financial risk or you know have additional functionality. Like they accrue a huge number of different protocol rights that are in control of a DAO. I think a purely governance token would be something like a DAO, where governance is just the thing that they're doing to achieve some shared goal, but doesn't have any direct ownership over, say, protocol-level functionality that is being okay. utilized by a broader ecosystem. So I would say that like what we're talking about here are, are protocol tokens specifically that obviously have governance rights as well, but I wouldn't say it's like purely just like governance rights and that's the only thing that's... That makes sense. So the more people are incentivized to build on this protocol because it's not rent-seeking, the more people will want to defend it and therefore want to hold these protocol tokens in order to... Mm-hmm ensure that it, it the that fees are, that fees are not turned on that's a really interesting yeah, concept it's amazing so for in order to i i keep i this is i do this in my classes too i'll just repeat what everyone said just to hammer home the idea but if the original analogy for crypto media was the more views are accrued the more like a piece of art is interacted with the more valuable the nft mm-hmm. becomes and so you're not incentivized to make the nft scarce in terms of how people can interact with it because that yep. would limit the amount of people who could interact with it which would limit the value the analogy here is that you want to protect the feelessness of this hyperstructure protocol so that more people can build with it which ultimately means that means that the the protocol itself uh, as a dependency would become or an interdependency as we've desperately been trying <laughs> desperately been trying <laughs> to push from this the dependency becomes more accessible to everyone so that that's the kind of analogy to to the nft is that whereas yeah, exactly. with the nft you have people interacting with it in terms of enjoying the artwork here you have a protocol of uh, people interacting with it in terms of building stuff and this idea of like the th- the very kind of like fundamental infrastructures that you're using for your daily life and for the companies that you're building on top of it, that you have a piece of ownership in it and you have a voice in it yeah. and that's a fundamental shift from you yeah yeah i think it's like it, to be the i'll repeat it for the final time it's like swap nft <laughs> with hyperstructure and then swap consumption with utilization the more it's utilized, yeah. more more valuable, more important it becomes. Um, in the same way with NFT, more consumed. 
and the more likely it is to be consumed in the future, the more valuable it becomes. And then like even to step back, and this was towards the end of the essay, I guess it's like, why, why do we think, or like, why do I think hyperstructures are like a good mental model? And I think it's because like, what's happening here is like, I, I do think there will be these internet or like society scale pieces of infrastructure in the forms of protocols that are needed. And like in 10 years time, like I think we'll look up and there are two, the most reductive categorization of value you can get to is fungible and non-fungible. The only category below that is like all value itself and non-fungible tokens need to be bought and sold via a marketplace and fungible tokens are bought and sold via exchanges. And I think in 10 years time, I think we'll see at least two very fundamental hyperstructures. One will be exchange hyperstructure, which could be something that's like Uniswap or Uniswap. And there will be a non-fungible token marketplace hyperstructure, which could be Zora or Zora-like in form. Because these are actions that every single person on the internet eventually will carry out day-to-day, -day, like loading a website or sending an email. And the nature of blockchains means that we can build them as public infrastructure and not private platforms at the core. So that's like where I think, that's what I think is the opportunity that we have to build something like this. Of course, it would be a lot easier to build it in a centralized platform way, but I think we've been given this medium to build digital public infrastructure. And I think that's like an experiment worth <laughs> at least attempting. <laughs> I'm happy to be wrong and that, you know, sure, it's like, let's build a centralized version of this or turn on the fees. But I, I do I do believe there's a way to build these things in a way that are truly public goods. So that's, that's part of the reason why I articulated it in the essay in the first place. Because, yeah, I don't think that's been obvious for the past couple of years. <laughs> yeah. I th no, I think that's great. And I think also the example of, of saying to people, maybe it's worth re-clarifying, though, that the fact that Uniswap has, what would you say, 85% market share? If if there if there was ever an arena in the na this nascent stage of Web three crypto whatever you want to call it if there was ever an arena where there were incentives to rent seeking well there have been many forks of Uniswap well, well absolutely exactly. but, but there there's crazy incentives right now to create rent seeking trading platforms that that's like the original use case for any of these tokens is people trading mm -hmm. them and there's like ridiculous amounts of money there so the idea that Uniswap can have 85% market share. I assume that's with DEXs, right? Decentralized exchanges as opposed to... Yeah, that's purely within decentralized exchanges. But I would posit that it will be the... the uh, probably, I think in five years' time, it'll it'll be 85% of all exchange. All fungible wow. exchange. Like, why not? Ex exactly, uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and I think like the, the current essay I'm writing is titled Trustless Centralization because I've always <laughs> had a bit of... I've always had a bit of an issue with the term decentralization because it's like mm -hmm. a Bitcoin maximalist will like scream decentralization and simultaneously want Bitcoin to be the only asset on the planet. So it's like, what dimension are we talking about decentralization here? And I think a synthesis or maybe a more accurate term is trustless centralization, which is yeah. if we can accept that in a lot of cases, a piece of infrastructure is actually best if there's only one of them. And at a societal yeah. level, we are optimizing that piece of infrastructure with the economies of scale to like get it as efficient as possible without duplication or fragmentation. And we can accept that that is actually the ideal market structure. But the problem we've had to date is that we haven't necessarily had an ownership system that is conducive to 
long-term alignment, which is when you look at like an Amazon or a Facebook or a Google, these are, yeah. these are truly pieces of public infrastructure, but because of the kind of the fundamental way they're being built means that you have monopolistic ownership and governance over that infrastructure that ends up putting them at odds with like societal needs in a lot of cases. So if we can then use blockchains to basically like, if there are some things that are truly so powerful and useful that everyone needs it, maybe no one person or, or entity should have that power. So how can we use the characteristics of crypto to basically eliminate those powers altogether and create them in the form of a hyperstructure essentially. So it's like, so it's like, okay, in the case that like a Uniswap or Azora in five years time has 90% market share, alarm bells would be ringing because it's like, oh shit, history is going to repeat itself with web two. Well, it's like, no, there is no single person who has governance rights or control or seeing the upside from that system because even a shareholder of Facebook has no say of like how the feed works. But a token holder in Uniswap can literally directly propose and vote on how the if the if the protocol had a color, like you could vote on changing that color. That's not something you get even as a shareholder of of a traditional platform. So I feel like where we're heading is a world of like trustless centralization, which is we get like the internet gets like a a kind of second take at going, okay, like this is, we are, these huge platforms are societal pieces of infrastructure. How can we re rebuild them in a way that are more neutral, public by design, and actually don't have these super controls at the fundamental level? Otherwise, yeah. So yeah, I can keep going. But yeah, trustless centralization, I think, is like where we're heading over the next like five to 10 years. Yeah, that's really interesting. It brings up a question. And if this is too tangential, we can also cut this. But a lot of criticism that I see on Twitter is around this idea of public goods not mm -hmm. being created by the state. And I think one thing that's really important in establishing here is how incredibly international these protocols are and how difficult mm -hmm. it will be to have a kind of like state coordinated project of this scale. So what would you say in response to some of those criticisms that these are still privatized, even though they're public goods? Privatized in the sense that the the owners of the protocol tokens are owners of the protocol. Yeah, I guess it's like there is now the like crypto has unlocked this kind of somewhat paradoxical state, which is oh, there is now private incentive to create public goods. So that's new in the first place. It's not like a, a government or a nation state is like taking on this cost and investment because there is no incentive. There's no financial incentive to do so. They're just doing it because they're like, we think we need this as a society. Now it's like, why not have both? If you create something that's super useful and is a public good, it can be provably public and neutral and also be financial incentive to even take the risk and spend the years building one of these things in the first. And then I think the the international point, I think that's like a... I think that's right, but I, I wouldn't try and stand the whole thing on that argument. The Zora team is like crazy international. I think we're like 30% US based. And then we're across like Europe, Russia, Australia, UK, a little bit of everywhere. Um, so it's like, I don't know even what government we would go to to get funding. <laughs> and then at my time at Coinbase, like I gave presentations to like the Federal Reserve in DC about USDC. And they're not even at a point where they can, this is two years ago, but there was no way they would even consider funding something. The, the, the mindset was more so how do we stop this? So that's another thread. I guess like the third kind of thought train on this is like, I think the, the funding model here is interestingly like kind of like funding a film or an artwork where it's like these things are commissioned 
And there's, there is a view where it's like, yes, we can create this thing that can essentially only need like a one-time deployment cost. And we're going to take a bet in the same way, oh, we're like producing a film. It's going to take four years and hundreds of millions of dollars. And then once the film happens, it just exists as this artifact. I think that's like actually a more apt model here for building protocols like this, where it's like strong point of view and trying to come in and create something that is super useful to everyone. But, you know, it, it has this like kind of one-time deployment cost and eventually it's like, it can just exist as a community and a piece of infrastructure that just runs without the need of the team after a certain point. I feel, again, this is mostly semantic, but when people start discussing public goods, I feel like people largely in the Web3 space are so acculturated to the idea that, for example, an Amazon does provide a public good. It just, we don't have any governance over it. That's like something that a Web3 native person, that's really easy to to say. When most Mm -hmm. people hear public goods, they think about parks or something. And it's quite, it's quite, that can be quite jarring sometimes because I feel like sometimes the misconception can be that then people who are very enamored with the potential for blockchains and crypto to create these kind of community, this community governance over digital infrastructure might then also be like, oh, all parks should be privately owned. Or like all hospitals or whatever. You hear that come up, which I, I, to me is no, I don't think that that's what people are arguing whatsoever. It's just maybe in, in the short term, like, thinking exclusively about these transnational kind of dependencies that everybody is dependent on, it would be far better if we had governance over those than the, the than someone like Zuckerberg or whatever having like a, a power of veto over exactly. infrastructure that billions of people use. Exactly. Yeah. I think um, maybe what I would say is like that skepticism is great and like never lose that skepticism. I guess what I'm saying is that now there is – what I think is sustainable model for private funding and public goods. I would say like use the hyperstructures essay as a checklist to critique. Are they actually building a public good or is this kind of a wolf in sheep's clothing that is speaking the language of the space, but actually has a lot more control and administrative functionality and monopolistic tendencies and, and too much power and use the, the, the essay as like almost a checklist where it's like, okay, is this actually a public good? Is it permissionless? Is it credibly neutral? Is it unstoppable? What are the controls in there? And I would say keep that, like that skepticism should, should actually become a shared practice of, okay, I can see this privately funded project is claiming to create a public good in this form. Now let's inspect the code and the infrastructure and ensure that this is in fact not built in a way that is maybe a little greedy versus open and provable, you know, all, all the things that kind of written in the essay. So that's, that's what I'd say. It's like, there are ways to like verify basically that it's, it, it's being built in a way that is truly a public good versus a, a private one. Yeah. That contextual layer I think is, is super important. That was honestly the first thing when it, when I first encountered the piece was just thinking this would be so helpful to be able to just distinguish in people's minds because there is a lot of there is a lot of valid criticism of of people using the language of the space and ostensibly building something that is you know very centrally controlled but that doesn't invalidate all the work that's being done that does adhere to the principles of the space that is good news right and it's like just being mm-hmm. able to just being able to point people to hyperstructures.xyz or whatever and be like who made the list? If I wanted to work on right. something that was unstoppable, where I'm not worried about getting rugged or things things basically changing, who should I who should I work with? That 
it feels like that piece of infrastructure is yet to be built and it's probably quite easy to accomplish. Yeah, Holly's smiling at me. I'm just smiling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one thing that comes up one thing that comes up in the in the piece that I think is also worth clarifying is you discuss a lot uh, this idea of positive sum. And mm-hmm. and I wonder I wonder it I think this is something that comes up it comes up quite frequently. I know other internet have also contributed a great essay on positive sum cultures that I'd recommend uh, people read. But I think for, for how would you characterize a positive sum piece of infrastructure? It's where it makes sense to collaborate instead of compete. So if you're creating an environment where collaboration is the default versus competition, then that's likely a positive sum environment. And like how that manifests practically is, for example, like in the Zora ecosystem, they're competing marketplaces built on a shared piece of infrastructure because what happens is by building it on this shared piece of infrastructure, they see like something like 30 to 35% of their bids come from outside of their own platform and website. Mm -hmm. So had they have tried to compete at the protocol layer and do it themselves, they've kind of turned away 30% of the market activity, which is like pretty substantial because they've basically created an island for themselves instead of being part of this open ecosystem where there is cross curation and and listings and interactions between all of these marketplaces, like an NFT on catalog, that listing also also like shows up on Azora or like a music blog writing about that piece. And it, it, it is, it economically makes sense to collaborate with the ecosystem instead of trying to compete with it. So that's, yeah, that's like the simplest way to put the, the positive sum trait. It's yeah, collaboration is the default, not competition. Yeah, that's awesome. And also, yeah, something, I mean, around this kind of like the, the sticky term of permissionlessness, we can definitely vouch for that. Like the, the, the idea that all of a sudden, for example, if you're an art maker, for your work to be in this environment where it can travel, so long as you, of course, conceived of the idea of having it exist within this ecosystem by actually minting an NFT, the ability, the ability to go with the flow and say, okay, I'm cool with other people being able to contextualize this, curate this, put it in a gallery, that ultimately is opening your arms to a whole world of invisible possibility as opposed yeah. to being being protectorate, which, and of course, those same protections that might have been associated with the previous era of DRM or whatever, like the ability to say, I have the master switch, right? Like I can take this work off sale, for example, yeah. is still there. So all the protections you might need are there. You can verify the provenance of it. You can tell where it's coming from. You can ultimately nuke the possibility or kind of stymie the possibility of it of it being sold if you don't want it to be sold, but then you mm-hmm. embrace the network effects of, of having anybody be able to signal boost it, particularly on top of that, like the finder's fee that you all, that you all have introduced, introducing a kind of incentive for someone to come along and say, I like this body of work or I like these artists. I don't need to ask their permission to go and contextualize it in this particular way because I think I can introduce this work to a whole new audience or whatever. Yeah is insanely powerful, but counterintuitive. Uh, uh, or- well, that could sound scary to some people, but you could almost contextualize it like somebody like writing an article about yeah. a group of musicians. You're not going to control whether or not they can mention you or add links to your work online, etc. There's no way to control that. And then that makes you right. reach a different audience. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And what's cool is it actually lowers the barrier to entry for participation because now you don't need to 
know the artist or own the NFT, you can simply start to point to it with nothing other than like a link and a website or even just a tweet. And you can potentially capture value off that. For everyone who's been create, like curating on Instagram or their like longtime blogs that you're like genuinely early or meaningfully contextualizing a piece, like now there's actually a path to capturing that value there in this context, which is super cool. But like curation has been like one of the most undervalued actions on the internet just since day one. And now there are just now there are models showing up which allows for that to be value accretive to the curator, which is um people yeah it's it's powerful too because oftentimes i'm thinking about a more traditional cultural context right like oftentimes the person creating that contextual value isn't the person that sees the benefit from from it blowing up and becoming a thing right if you think for example about journalists or writers who will look at a field and be like there is an emergent trend of different artists or musicians making this kind of work i'm going to create a name for it that and now all of a sudden that's a that's a thing in the world that people are excited about because you've connected these dots mm-hmm. in a curatorial capacity or in a journalistic capacity who then benefits from that traditionally it would be the label maybe or the gallery representative or the artists involved but the person who created that context that basically all of a sudden created a market for uh, that work wouldn't, in fact, in, in a traditional sense, and this is probably something that needs to be worked out in the space, in a traditional sense, them not seeing any upside from that would be considered a mark of like credibility. I think it works both ways, actually. Like your example is very yeah. well, but also on the flip side, I think about like people who curate on Instagram and it'll be like, 60s and 70s interiors or whatever and they just kind of like collect photos from around the web and then Mm -hmm. how do they monetize that they'll do advertising on their channel once they've built enough interest and actually the people who did the original photography or the original work see no upside in this kind of thing that they've built so it's been a similar way totally here 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 there's a way a way for the people who are in in ostensibly competing to create that context if you create the sufficient context you can see compensation for for the value that you bring to a work which and is pretty still, exciting and there's still provenance for the original work exactly yeah exactly yeah which is wild <laughs> and i feel like uh curation is even i think like one of the most exciting things that i've been observing in trying to participate in as much as possible is like these projects now that start as purely public domain or cco from day one and is like curation is a part of creating too like when you're sampling and remixing and stuff like that like you're curating the pieces of work to create a new one i feel like that is now being unlocked by orders of magnitude with so much work both across music visual generative all formats now starting as public domain from day one because it's it's now like some of the highest quality work in at least the web3 ecosystem is completely accessible to everyone to freely remix and recontextualize in a new body of work which is like, to me, one of the most exciting trends that is like, I, I, I got a lot of hate for saying that you should put your work in the public domain in this NFT context, because it's super scary. It's a one way trip. It, it, it kind of, it, it, change, it, it requires a leap of faith, but now it's really starting to evolve. And I think like new economic models as well with DAO formation and stuff like that, which we were experimenting too with Holly Plus is now becoming a lot more, feels like it's, I think that's like something to be, observing over the next year just feels like a, a breakout moment which is just starting to form which is really cool just to extend the curation point into this context yeah but i'm excited for that yeah a lot of exciting news around holly plus coming out soon yeah exactly and the, <laughs> yeah. we have, it's it's probably it's probably a, a departure but 
it's something we're definitely interested in in getting some more people who are working on i would say pretty key ai infrastructure going forward and this mm-hmm. idea of the hyperstructure i think is very useful in that context too because of course there there's also a real concern like a very real concern that most people aren't very let's say fluent about of kind of concentration of resources and concentration of of data just more broadly and this kind of hyperstructure vision of what would it mean holly plus was definitely like is an experiment toward this coming from one individual, but it, it is very advantageous and, and and far more idealistic to think AI infrastructure going forward as looking more like a hyperstructure that people can build on and interact with than a centralized repository. It's a, it's a big point that's probably, yeah, it would take us too long to go into, but like <laughs> this language, this language and the, dis- the distinction could be very helpful to that end. Yeah, for sure. So we're, I think we're in some ways when we were, first reading the piece and reading between the lines obviously zora launched with version three this was how long ago my my sense of time in the space is completely it could Uh, be two yeah i think it was five crypto years ago so about two weeks and so i wonder reading between the lines i'm assuming and you've pretty much said said this up until now that you view zora as a hyperstructure and so i wonder what is what is in the immediate future for Zora and how, yeah, what's in the immediate future for Zora? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, we recently launched V3. So we've taken all of the learnings from the first two versions that we deployed over the, the first year in our protocol life and created what I think is the, the purest marketplace protocol possible that satisfies all of the characteristics of a hyperstructure. So it's essentially a way for you to, to buy and sell any NFT in a completely trustless and on-chain context, which sounds like super simple, but like amazingly, no one's really done that yet. So yeah, we've taken a year of learning out in the ecosystem, building with platforms alongside us that are built on the protocol. And yeah, I guess like with the V3, like the notable call-outs is it's extremely gas efficient. So um, we've tried to make it as cheap as possible to interact with. We've built in these expansive fee models for platforms and participants who want to build on top of the protocol. So the finder's fee is one. The kind of host fee is another that's coming out in the next like couple of weeks. And we came up with a new architecture on chain, which means that we can very easily deploy new market types into the Zora protocol in a way that is still completely permissionless and don't compromise and change any prior versions. So this was this is like pretty technical. There was this, there are two like broad approaches that sit on opposite ends of the spectrum. One is you deploy a completely upgradable upgradable protocol which can change at any time, super admin control, but that lets you move and iterate very quickly as a team. That makes it very hard for people to build on top of. The other extreme is one way deployment uh, kind of instance, which means that you get all the guarantees and super, super compelling to build on as a, a platform, but very hard to migrate between new versions. We've found what we think is a great ideal, which is you can deploy new versions into this kind of module ecosystem and it allows you to, like, as a builder, interface with, oh, I want to interface with options version 1.1 or options version 1.3. And you can do that through like the same interface on chain. 
but option 1.5 will never compromise earlier versions. So you still get those guarantees, but it's a much nicer daughter experience. So that means it's like we've got a whole lot of market types coming on chain literally as we speak. So we started with fixed price listings. So like buy now on chain offers for any NFT, we've got collection offers coming. So this is like basically a way to just say, I'm willing to pay 50 ETH for any CryptoPunk and any CryptoPunk holder can accept that single offer. We've also got auctions. We've got like rain. There's all sorts of wacky market types that, are, that if you go into our GitHub, you can see them and they're going through public review and audit, but they're all being deployed on chain. And then the other kind of parallel track is the Zora DAO does exist on chain and you can see it and you can see the, the fee switches, the Zora fee switches known as Zorfs held by the DAO right now. And we're on like a very rapid path to expanding ownership of that DAO away from Zora Labs and to the community over the next kind of like couple of months. So yeah, it's a pretty crazy time because it's like, all right, we've got this kind of V3 of the protocol, which we've been working on for months. And now that's finally deployed and live and propagating out through the ecosystem. And now that there is like a DAO and like things that are worthy of control and being defended and people who are contributing new modules to the ecosystem, it's like, okay, how do we expand community ownership to the community? And that's the, the fun and exciting point of no return that I'm excited to push through over the next couple of months. So <laughs> Yeah, there's, a, there's yeah. a lot going on. But yeah, what it means simply is you can go to Zora.co and you can buy and sell NFTs built on a you know hyperstructure and on, on an unstoppable market. And there's 25 to 30 independent marketplaces for music and virtual worlds and land and generative art and stuff like that that are all built on Zora. They're all part of this ecosystem. So yeah, that's the, the short summary of what's happening right now and what's coming over the next couple of months. So it's a really exciting time. You're dropping some serious alpha. Uh, it's uh, I, I wrote this in the in the V3 announcement, so it, I was surprised that more people didn't pick up on it. It was like it, there was hundreds <laughs> of thousands of impressions in the article, and I was like, "How did I wrote it?" <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it's just it's cool. It's I think uh, this is being just generally too. Like we're, we're super transparent about what we're doing, and I feel like we're so transparent about it that it's people are like, "Oh, okay, I guess it's it's obvious. It's like it, maybe it's something." Yeah, it, it's. It's not the celebratory be-all, end-all event. It's just like a meaningful step in the direction that we've been on since we started. So it's cool that everyone's just like, oh, sweet. Makes sense. Instead of, yo, that's crazy. <laughs> I also yeah. I also want to clarify as well that when you mentioned the fee-switching NFTs, you were saying Zorba, not Zorba. Because obviously a few, yeah. a few yeah. was it whatever, like... It was the New Year's Day. It was New Year's Day, exactly, which was two months ago, a month and a bit ago, you invited everybody to mint the Zorbza. Okay, Um, so that's separate. Exactly, exactly. So that's that's, that's separate, but but worth worth establishing between (laughs) between our various accents. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yes, that's right. Um, That's right. (laughs) Uh, By the way, because that is, I think, last time I checked, it's like the fifth most widely owned NFT on Ethereum. It's it's totally insane. It was just like, it was a one year celebration from the first version. Basically like anyone could mint uh, Azorb and Azorb is like an on-chain mirror. The the color is like specific to the wallet it's in. So if you transfer it to a different wallet, it'll reflect the color of that wallet basically. And yeah, it was like the most used contract for the first two days of the year. And there was like, I think 60 something thousand of these things minted and just like a wild community moment that 
revealed a bunch of different, like entirely new pockets of the community. We didn't really know were there that have always been watching. And it's like now we have really strong Chinese discord and Indonesian discord and all of these new kind of regions and communities have formed because of that celebratory cool. experiment, which was just like, yeah, it was wild to see. And a fun Pretty way cool. to study cool. it. Nod, nod to the original color coins too, that, that every yeah that's true that's true <laughs> shout out counterparty <laughs> really like way way back but yeah that's that's really that's really exciting yeah that's that's been my association with the protocol is yeah you've pretty much been signaling your intentions from the beginning like articulating in very specific detail exactly what you plan on building <laughs> and would you say that the 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 fair analogy here is zora is to OpenSea as uniswap is to coinbase I would say that's the probably as accurate as you could get in terms of analogy. Yeah. That's the simplest way to think about it. Yeah. Which I, is pretty cool, right? Yeah. Because it, it's worth maybe addressing a little bit without dunking on OpenSea too much. Because I think that OpenSea being quite early, some corners were indeed cut in how they operate. But for example, there was a lot of criticism suggesting that a lot of wallet infrastructure, when you want to view your NFTs refers to the OpenSea API. And there are certain challenges that come with the, the centralization of that of that database that many have been critical of. I wonder if you were to condense it down, what are the advantages and maybe and maybe some of the opportunities to deviate from an OpenSea when, well, when, I, get, when I have a lot of empathy for OpenSea because I remember I was at Coinbase at the time when it was like going through the same kind of radical growth going down quite often and was shocked by its own success. I think like OpenSea deserves a lot of credit because they basically built for three, three or four years with basically no attention, no traction. And had, they are the, like the leading marketplace in the ecosystem today because they've been doing it for the longest. They've been doing it, I think, with the, the best information they've had at the time by by literally being first, like they, they are pioneers. And I think what's gonna, I think what I'd imagine over the next year or so, as the Coinbases of the world have announced their marketplace, we've got Looks Rare as well, completing at the at competing at the platform level. I actually think these marketplaces themselves will evolve and potentially OpenSea is built on this protocol called Wyvern Protocol, which was just like a very small project. I think it was mostly just a side project that very simple but had the design intent of being off-chain. The orders are held off-chain in a centralized database. I could imagine as like these platforms compete against each other at the highest level and fragment the market off-chain, that something like Azora is actually like a pretty viable solution for these marketplaces themselves to adopt as a middle ground because like OpenSea does offer a great user experience for first-time users. I don't think that'll stop being true for a while but as like the market is evolving at the protocol level, it's I actually think it's relatively straightforward for an OpenSea or a Coinbase or a LooksRare to integrate something like Azora into their system because Azora is a relatively new development. These are pragmatic platforms and they've got enough <laughs> enough, a challenge, enough of a challenge building these massive centralized platforms, let alone also innovating at the protocol level. So I'd imagine like it'll be in, in the same way where I think like I wouldn't be surprised if a Coinbase or a centralized exchange like that like start building on top of Uniswap for the liquidity in their experience as well. So that's where I think things are going to go. The biggest difference between OpenSea and Azora today is that the market lives entirely on chain and everything I spoke about in the high infrastructure piece. So as a builder, 
it's basically the, the difference between an open sea where you might have to reach out, get API keys, and you're interacting with their database. It's much, much better for a developer to be to use something like Azora because the markets are on chain. And then by nature of the markets being on chain, you can you can then build other protocols and applications and integrations on top of it, like a, a party bidding or or DAOs or the by being on chain, you unlock an entire new universe of apps that just simply aren't possible to build on top of a market that lives in a database. So it's very builder focused. So like we we spend a lot of energy trying to help the creation of new marketplaces and new galleries. But then also for artists who are now increasingly pushing for their own contracts, their own websites for those contracts. It's really great for them too, because now you can not only own your contract, you can also own your market for it too. So it's compelling a bunch of few dimensions, but obviously the cost of that is you have to pay the gas costs on chain and there's a slightly higher barrier to entry in terms of the user experience. But I'd imagine that's come down over time as awesome that the broader ecosystem just build better tooling around this stuff. So that's pretty, yeah, that's pretty interesting to, to switch it there where it's, cause I feel like generally in this space, I mean, talking about positive, some environments, like oftentimes I think coming from a web two scenario, the, the attitude is always pitting people against each other. But even even the comment Holly brought up earlier of there be there needing to be a kind of central area that establishes trust, let's say, around identity, mm-hmm. which OpenSea does serve as in some ways. Mm-hmm. Given them takedown requests before and they've honored them. It, exactly. Right. The ability for them saying, okay, well, this isn't this kind of unstoppable decentralized protocol, right? That's what you guys have been building. But OpenSea being probably the most looked at location mm-hmm. for for establishing like the true provenance or something. They even have a verified system around creators. And then it means um, they can put more resources towards that than to focusing on the protocol level. And why do that? Why do that when, to go back to the previous point, you guys are building a fee-less, unstoppable protocol? Yeah, exactly. And their business model as currently constructed is honored as well. So it's, they, it's, it's not, oh, by adopting this protocol, we throw away our business model. That it's, Their business model would still be honored. And yeah, exactly. There's, it should, it would hypothetically be a relatively easy decision if they were thinking about it that way. In the same way, where it's like, I think for a, a, on the Coinbase Uniswap side, it's yeah, Uniswap clearly has like dominant liquidity and helps Coinbase give their user the best price for a trade because there's no protocol wide free. Like it, it's just like a no brainer. Um, it just you kind of just have to break down the web two mindset of thinking, which is we've got to build it all ourselves, own the whole stack. That's yeah. the that's like where the most amount of friction is. But I think on the objective kind of like you draw up a table and kind of weigh up weigh up the options, it's hard to argue against. So that, that's where I think things will be going. So I, I think, and again, this is why I think we need to develop the language around the differences between a protocol and a platform. And it's like OpenSea is a platform, Zora is a protocol. Wild. One other thing I think is maybe worth clearing up that I also need some kind of a refresher on it, if I'm honest, is when we talk about Zora, I remember reading uh, in adva- uh, before that we have, for example, like Zora Labs, the Zora DAO, potentially potentially reading between the lines here, a Zora token. Is it, 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 it might be worthwhile like establishing an understanding of the distinctions between those things for, for people listening? I could certainly use a refresher on that. Yeah, I think there are there are three core entities in a system like this. There is the protocol itself, which has protocol controls, a fee switch. The protocol protocols are credibly neutral, permissionless, unstoppable, all of those things. So it's like everyone in the world or on the internet will be able to use the Zora protocol no matter what. 
there is Zora Labs, which is the you know traditional company that got venture funding to employ a team of people to work on building this thing for years. And that's a centralized company that is building and we have created the protocol and we've created in the, pro- the protocol in a way that we have very limited control over it. Then there is the Zora DAO, which is essentially the token-based or crypto-based ownership over the protocol controls. So I, I could imagine if we look up like a year from now, you will see Zora Labs being one of many platforms and teams who are building on top of the protocol. The protocol will be owned and governed by the Zora DAO, which has broad ownership across the entire community, including people who've used the protocol, built on top of it, etc. And of course, like us as a team. And they are three distinct entities. So it's like Zora Labs will have no ability to deplatform people from the protocol, but Zora Labs would have the ability to deplatform from its own website. Zora DAO has the ability to control the future development and treasury allocation of the Zora DAO and the control over the protocol, but it has no say over what happens in Zora Labs, for example. So they're like three very distinct entities with different levels of centralization and trust, with protocol being on the far left of trustless and Zora Labs being on the far right of trusted. I think I, I'm actually not sure if Zora Labs is, is actually a thing in five years' time. Like, I think most of the people on the Zora team would prefer to work for the Zora DAO in the, in the short, medium, and long term. Like, working for DAOs is just it's more fun, but it's, and it's like more fluid. And you get it's just like it's, it's just totally wild being in a Discord with a thousand people versus like a Slack with 30. Obviously, there's trade offs there, but I think like the, the most important institution that we're creating on top of the protocol is the DAO, but it's very distinct from the the labs that kind of helped create it. And yeah, there's probably examples from the space I could, I could talk to, to elaborate further, but yeah, I don't know, maybe I can just leave it at that and see what questions you have or thoughts you have. So do original supporters, AKA investors of Zora labs, then as kind of, compensation for their support receive uh, a voice in the DAO? That's correct. So I think like this, the old hypothetical here, but it's, I would imagine, and this is what's like being quite common, say even with Uniswap, where the token gets created, the labs, labs team gets like a certain amount of those tokens and the investors get a certain amount of those tokens. And like the kind of, I would say the, the kind of, practice of the space has been that the community always gets the majority share control of the DAO. So the labs and the employees and investors of that entity, it might get anywhere between 40 to 45% of the network, but the community of users and developers and everyone in the ecosystem from day one, start with majority control and ownership of the yeah. DAO. So this is, this is for those we can jog back. We had a long call with Nathan Schneider a long time ago. This is roughly the idea of exiting to community. Exactly. So it's and it's exiting community. It's like it's like an IPO where no one has to pay any, anything. It's like the community, <laughs> the community, like by nature of helping bootstrap and participating in the protocol in the early days. We've seen this time and time again now in the in the crypto space with the Uniswap DAO and the ENS DAO, where control and ownership of the DAO and therefore the protocol 
is majority owned and controlled by the community who have been utilizing it, not by the team that built it. And there's nothing that's like enforcing that other than that's just the social practice that has formed over time. I think very early on in kind of the early ICO era, there were there was like the team would, the labs would get 80%, the community get like 20%. And it's just, we've seen that that plays out to be unsustainable and skews the incentives. I think it's like the space is dialed into like majority control. And yeah, I guess like exit to community. I, I don't like exit because it's not the end. I would like to say it's like starting with the community where it's like, Hey, like we're actually creating an organization here that needs to help further and propagate this protocol over a very long time frame. So I view it more as like day one. And in fact, I think like over the, if I was starting Zora today, I would skip the lab step. I would just go straight to DAO. But two years ago or crypto 20 years ago, that there wasn't really the infrastructure to do that. I think now there is actually tooling where I think you could viably start a protocol as DAO learned from day one. And I think like Juicebox is a great example of this. Nouns DAO is a, is a great example of this. But so maybe maybe the, the labs piece is just a relic from this kind of crossover area we're in. But we at least know that giving majority ownership to the community is the way to start one of these things effectively, which is cool. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, difficult, it's difficult to future-proof any of this, but I think, yeah, you've definitely been about as good as anyone I've seen in terms of future proofing, <laughs> like thinking about the first conversation a couple of years ago. It's And also just this general principle of hyperstructures being something that will be around for a long period of time. Like those principles, as you said, the DAO tooling, I feel like it's only really been the last year that that right. stuff has been resilient and, and super just ready for adoption. Yeah, it seems like you're fairly future-proofed on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm sure we've got some things wrong and it's like we, we have the, the privilege of being able to learn from and observe how Uniswap did it, how ENS did it, how Gitcoin did it, how all of these projects have done it. And we've we've got, I think, some like great learnings and they, each one of those projects iterated and pushed forward the way to do this. So I hope like we can have a meaningful contribution and iteration and then I'm sure... The next project will will do the same thing. They'll take learnings from maybe things we missed or or got wrong, and then as a space, shared practices for doing something like this just continue to improve. But yeah, we're standing on the, on a lot of shoulders here to to even get to this point, which is you know, lucky. Yeah, see how it plays out. Very thorough and great, and it's wonderful to be able to talk through this stuff with you. I wonder, is like a slight detour before we let you go, is there anything mm -hmm. else happening in the space at the moment that you're particularly excited about? Mm -hmm. You're on top of this more than anybody. Yeah, this is this is this is the the recommendation. Yeah, side. I was actually trying to push the conversation in this direction with the CCO piece. I Nounsdow is has completely nerd sniped me and captivated my attention in the way that this project is operating and, and running. Nounsdow is like, if, if CryptoPunks was kind of Citizen Kane format where it's like, oh, okay, this is what the book, they, they define, defined the form and then everyone did a 10K project. There's been this progression of like CryptoPunks was first. The IP was entirely owned by Lava Labs, which meant there's been a very limited and frankly, Lava Labs has been very aggressive in stopping derivative projects. So you could argue that that's like harming its long-term adoption because ownership is super restricted to that 10K and the meme isn't propagating. Bored Apes, interestingly, I think is a meaningful iteration on the Lava Labs model because they were like, okay, we're still going to operate in a traditional IP construct, but as the owner of the ape, you own the traditional IP to it. So that's, that's, a, that's a big step. That I, it's not all the way, but it's a big step. What they also did is that they created official derivative projects in the form of like mutant apes and 
there's got a whole list of them. I don't really keep up with it, but I know that they have like officially owned derivatives. And that's expanded the broader ownership of the Bored Apes meme at large. But again, Bored Apes like kind of restrict derivatives outside of their own control. And they accrue all the capital as a centralized entity. NamsDAO, I think, is a meaningful breakthrough in design here because the model is this. There will be a noun minted one a day forever. So this project is six months old. I think there's 202 nouns. The ETH from every sale of those nouns goes directly into a DAO that is controlled by the NFT owners. So there's been 202 nouns minted and there's something like $60 million worth of ETH in this treasury that the NFT holders themselves have voting control over it. Pair this with the nouns are in the public domain. So it's CCO from day one. So this DAO has essentially not only made it possible for anyone to create their own derivative project to build on the nouns meme, but the DAO actually funds the creation of derivatives to help propagate the meme further. And like the, so the nouns DAO is like has these famous glasses that they're created and you'll probably start seeing show up everywhere because the DAO is like, oh, let's go fund a project which has led to the creation of a coloring book for kids and give it to them. Let's go fund the creation of a skate park that is nouns themed. Let's go fund the creation of a basketball that is caught that is like nouns themed. Let's go put a 30 foot statue of the glasses on top of Randy's donuts in LA and use the Dow treasury. We can vote and do that. And I'm like, every single one of those things I just described is actually happening. There's a noun figurine being sent up to the International Space Station later in this year. <laughs> and it's, I have fears that this, this DAO might be like a paperclip maximizer that's just going to... But what's interesting <laughs> is like, it's had explicit community ownership over the, the, the characters. And it's, just, it's been this DAO that is just form, forming and accruing ETH, which you can then use to propagate its own meme further, which then adds more value into it. I'm just like, what, what, the, what is this? <laughs> I, I kind of, I, like, I was very skeptical of it. And then I finally, once I dug into it, looked into the solidity, learned more about the DAO, like understood the intentions behind it. I was like, yo, this is one of the most interesting. If there was a Web3 Disney or Pixar, I think it would look like this. So yeah, that's a project I've been getting increasingly deep into and recently got announced so I could be part of the DAO and just like learn with my hands and participate. But the adoption of CCO from day one and using the derivatives ecosystem as a superpower has been one of the most like exciting things to me and seeing it play out using NFT ownership at the core has just been wild to see how it propagates. So I think that that's a project that I'm like fascinated by. I would encourage people to look at. Are people reselling their, their, their nouns or do people tend to hang on to them once they have them? Because when you, if you sell them, then you lose your value. Yeah, exactly. So let me have, I think there's, there's only been something like 15 secondary sales or something like that. And that's mostly being people who bought multiple nouns. I don't, I, I'm sure maybe someone has completely exited the DAO, but again, it's so early. Like there's only, I think there's 200, there's 202 nouns because the project's 202 days old. And how many owners are there? Let me look. There's 122 owners. So it's a very small. And this, this project was spearheaded by a really interesting personality in the space. I'm pseudonymous, like uh, Punk4156, who's very early to the punk community and essentially exited the punk community because, you know, of a fundamental disbelief in the traditional IP model that 
the Lava Labs company has been using to steward CryptoPunks. And I think nouns is a a acknowledgement that CryptoPunks is like a a formative project, but there's there's been room for iteration to lean much more into the the Web3 native models that are afforded to you by NFTs and therefore CCO as the default. Yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty wild. Yeah, it's it's pretty wild because it's it feels like that that is the beginnings of an epic philosophical debate, right? Where mm-hmm. exactly the, the the punks and the lava labs approach, the board apes being isn't there some some argument right now? It may have already gone through that some super large companies looking to acquire board apes. Yeah, and the fact that the traditional, yeah, it, that's the kind of thing. The fact that the traditional IP is even acquirable is like exactly it's it's yeah incongruent. Or, I don't know. It, it, it just doesn't line up with the medium they're dealing with. But yeah, that's part of the problem right now. One criticism that I've seen of doubt of nouns, which I think is pretty much applicable across the space, is that it's gate gatekeeping of for the wealthy or like a kind of game for the wealthy because the buy in is so high. That it's ridiculous. It is yeah. ridiculous, and I think that that's a very valid criticism, but it's also maybe an interesting experiment that could then be applied to other communities that are much lower barrier for entry. Yeah, I would. So I was like, I was, I, I guess I like fought nouns for so long because I was like, why are people paying so much money for this? And I was kind of like frustrated. <laughs> Like you can see my bidding history. I try and bid like 0.69 ETH or whatever and one ETH. And then someone would just bid 70 ETH on top of me. And I'd be like, <laughs> I'd be like, I'd be like, what the, I like, because I didn't understand the model. So I, I think like, I would say nouns has a very high barrier to entry into the DAO, but there is also like the NFTs are essentially backed by ETH. So it's because these are very real voting control over ETH treasury you're basically spending like 70 ETH, 68 ETH plus an NFT. There's an interesting kind of, and that's not obvious. And like, I've, I've, I've got an image that I can share and put, we can put in the show notes of what's what buying a noun actually equates to, because it's much more than just like a really pretty and cute JPEG. But the, the other thing I've seen is that for people who do not have tens or hundreds of ETH, their path to engagement is to actually create derivative works and, expand the nouns ecosystem and create ownership for themselves. So it's, there's been a couple of examples now of derivative projects that they were just like, oh, I'm going to reinterpret the nouns meme in my own context, create a sub-community of nouns, and then they make enough ETH from that derivative work and then buy themselves a noun as a group. Like this is just like interest. And that's where I think there's this cool positive sum behavior where it's because it's in the it's in the public domain anyone can freely if they can't get direct access to the DAO, they can get direct access to the meme and the content and reinterpret it in any context they want and if they reinterpret it in a way that's like very different to the nouns DAO, they'll likely capture value from that and therefore nouns DAO benefits because the memes being taken into places it hasn't been before and the the derivative creator has benefited because they're capturing direct value from that. Yeah, but it's like the amount of ETH. I, uh, D and I talk, my co-founder and I talk about this a lot. It's, it's like one of the biggest things this DAO has revealed to me is that most DAOs in the space are actually idea constrained. They're not capital constrained. And it's been interesting seeing that it's like this DAO has you know almost 20,000 ETH in it. And... It's actually uh, now it's finding its its own rhythm of like increasingly creative ways to propagate the meme. But it's it's actually once you really sit in it, it's like, wow, it's actually 
the creativity piece is the, the thing that is the constraint, at least in this case, not the, which sounds so obvious, but I think to a lot of crypto people or like people who come from the finance side, they're just like, oh, capital is everything. Ideas are nothing. It's all about execution, whatever. I think like crypto is highlighting the other side. What's like, maybe like good ideas, good, like creative creativity is actually like maybe the most scarce thing in a lot of ways. And there's a lot of multi-billion dollar DAOs that have done nothing for years. So it's, yeah, I don't know. It's just something cool to observe where it's like, okay, like a, a crypto DAO creating a, a, a skate park. That's pretty dope. Funding kids coloring books. That's wild. There's going to be more yeah, and more no, stuff. No. And it's cool seeing crypto get weird like that. Yeah, totally. That's the thing you need. Like, I know, I feel like it's the same in the arts more generally is you need, you need some kind of value to underpin things. And of course there's different people who are advantaged in different ways, right? There are some people who are advantaged in the sense that they can just drop money on everything. And in a mm-hmm. short term, that can be, that can be a short term advantage, but long term, that isn't what's going to make things stick. There's right. analogies with, with artists just generally, right? If you have an insane disposable income to be able to work on art all the time. That's a huge leg up from most people on earth. Absolutely. But well, the joke is always like when the working class artists go to go to art school with the, the wealthy artists that are making like marble sculptures. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, exactly. Right, right. But the thing is in the short, in the short term, that stuff can of course be advantageous, but over a career span, it, it really is ideas that kind of, that can, can distinguish things or at least, at least that short term advantage isn't total. And yeah. yeah. And, and when you're dealing with these projects, obviously like you had the punks, if you were fortunate enough to, to mint early or whatever, then, you know, there, but, but now that mechanism is out there to be in it's really difficult. It's not, it's not a scarce concept anymore. It's really, really difficult to, to distinguish from one project to the other. So a proposal like this kind of meme paperclip generator, (laughs) it's cool. It's, It's a cool philosophical bet. Right. It's a cool philosophical yeah. thing to, and, and particularly the idea. Yeah. I, I, I remember when Nan started and I certainly wasn't in a position to, to, to buy one, but the, but this idea that that treasury would then be put toward efforts to propagate or maybe even challenge the meme is pretty interesting. Like that's idea, yeah. pretty interesting. Anyone else exactly. would be like, okay, I don't care about nouns. I, I care about esoteric. Uh, I know. And we have way too much work on right now. And so thank you very much, Jacob, for filling my brain now with <laughs> a lot of interesting things to do with the Nan's meme. Um, exactly. This is where it's fascinating, right? Cause it's like in the punks example, as an artist, you have no way to participate with that as like a cultural artifact because of the tight IP constraints. So it's, it's very exclusive all the way down because the only way you can really participate with punks is to spend a shitload of ETH or BO, which is like the allure to the punk owners. But like as a, as a body of work or as a meme or, or a, a thing to be communicated, it's hard to expand on versus like nouns. It's like if you can't afford a noun. It's like I, I put the I put the nouns glasses on my hyperstructure essay just because I could. And it's like, all right, yeah. sweet, like it's down at the bottom, or it's like you could reinterpret it into, you know, a, a holy hand and generative piece because you can and like someone from the nouns you could I don't know, there's there's way for you to participate and create in the nouns universe now that just hasn't been really possible before. And now the fact that like the DAO funds it, it's kind of like if the Holy Plus DAO wasn't only funding further development of Holly Plus technology, you actually pay and commission artists to to yeah. reinterpret and use the Holly like Plus voice. Like you're paying for it to be propagated in a way and being reinterpreted, which is that's just interesting. <laughs> interesting <laughs> it's and it's an interesting that, device. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a very interesting device because of the philosophical CCO underpinnings. It's a really mm-hmm. interesting device for generalizable experiments in CCO 
media yep. period. So you're using the NANs. Okay, I'm I'm NANs pilled now. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty. Yeah, that's pretty cool and crazy. Yeah. And oh. I guess, yeah, it's wild. As if you take, it's like you take the, like, is nouns, I've actually been thinking this, is nouns actually a create, if there was a creative hyperstructure, what would it look like? Is is that, is nouns exhibiting that? Because it is unstoppable and open and free. It, 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 I'm like, shit, it exhibits all those characteristics. But I'm like, okay, if the trustless centralization thesis is right, are we all going to end up in this nouns universe and in traditional <laughs> entertainment? Like entertainment kind of follows like this power thing where it's like the Marvels and Disney and or like Marvel, Pixar, Star Wars are like a huge amount of the entertainment industry and it's all owned by Disney is like the next extreme that we're actually all just part of this like nouns universe that is propagating throughout all of culture. And I'm like, what does that even the nouns glasses is a meme is like the most silent and like hidden and interesting project in the space to me that is starting to exhibit very interesting characteristics and taking forms in both the real world and the internet that I'm like, huh, well, that's, I don't know. It just, it's, it's worth thinking about. I think somebody with, needs to make a series of clippies with the noun style glasses as the perfect oh, kind of. The uh, noun style project is going to be. Yeah. Um, have you ever seen the, the film, The Congress? I haven't. I haven't. I, I should. I'm going to. Yeah. The Congress. I can recommend it. The filmmaker Ari Foreman, he's an Israeli uh, filmmaker. He, he did this very beautiful film called What's with Bashir that I can recommend too. But he made this movie called The Congress that I don't think people fully understood. It's actually. It's very relevant to some of the Holly Plus stuff. Isn't it based on an Asimov novel? It's based on an Asimov novel, but it's slightly the uh, the future logical. Yeah, okay, yeah. This um, it's, yeah. it's based on it, but it's not. It's not kind of uh, a strict adherent to the to the book. But but it's very very interesting related specifically. It's very interesting related to Holly Plus, but super interesting related to what you're discussing with Nance. Where yeah, it, I, I won't ruin it for anybody, but basically half of the film, like the first half of the film, is live action, and then that transitions into a metaverse type yeah. universe, and the IP. It's funny there because this is the evil version, though. The Congress. it's definitely well, it's an evil version, but it's a, but it but it articulates some of the stakes of like IP ownership and particularly like animation or animated people, reanimated people. You would love it, honestly. It's anyone into mm. who's interested in this stuff should should watch that film. It needs to be revived as a very prophetic uh, piece of cinema. And Robin I, Wright's wonderful. Yeah, Robin Wright's amazing. Yeah, yeah amazing. I just recommend it. I recommend watch it. that. But we should probably wrap it up because yeah, exactly. it's been hours. So yeah, it's good to <laughs> put an end to it. Well, I'm, I'm glad, and there'll and there'll be opportunities to 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 revisit in future. I'm grateful that you that you keep coming on with with updates i guess we've already covered this before but it was been a couple of years our final question is what does interdependence mean to you in fact actually i think that the first time we spoke was before jay springit shout out jay springit recommended we ask that at the end of the episode oh, so, so this will be the first, first time, time. No, this is the second time it's the second time oh, yeah. <laughs> what's funny what's funny is like it's such a good question because i literally couldn't sleep i was like what would my answer be to this <laughs> and i i honestly forgot that you were going to ask it until just now and i was like oh fuck i like What's funny is I just wanted to give a simple answer, like synergy, and just like end it there. <laughs> Interdependence. Where are my thoughts on this now? I don't know. The, the only other word that comes to mind for me is you can't go it alone. Or and it's like community. It's like all of the things that we're doing here, everything I'm talking about. Like Zora doesn't exist without an ecosystem that is building and contributing on top of it. I think like Web3 is like the embodiment of interdependence in a lot of ways because these systems are not 
singular and isolated in silos. Like they require coexistence and participation and collaboration to sustain themselves. So I kind of interdependence to me is like the description of a state or sustainability and the ability to even exist. Yeah. I don't know. Like that's my rambling answer, but that's, that's my feeling of it. It's funny how it's like maybe the third time I'm on here and two years from now I'll have a succinct answer, but it's funny that I, I love defining things and I can't come up with concise way, which is, yeah, it's, I, to me, it's, yeah, community. It's, yeah, we need each other. <laughs> there we go. There's the blend. I feel like this entire episode has laid out why interdependence is such a key part of the space. It's yeah, the been, positive sum mentality and the, yeah, yeah the, this, when it is just that weird conceptual leap where you're like, uh, actually, I don't stand to lose anything. I only stand to gain from opening this up, which yeah. is, mm-hmm. again, the philosophical underpinnings of what you're describing with Anand's DAO. My hope, what's funny, this always happens when you get used to asking the same thing over and over again. Like, my hope is that eventually it becomes redundant, which is interesting related to some of the protocol developments, too. It's like the hope is eventually you can go away. And in much the same way, the hope is that in a couple of years' time, asking the question, what does interdependence mean to you was super banal. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, like, oh yeah, like that's, it's just how we do things now. That's kind of the, 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 the motivation at least behind it. Um, yeah, exactly. It'd be much more, and probably if we, if everything plays out correctly and we do what we want and what's created, it's going to be much more interesting to ask what is independent because that it's, it's the opposite. It's like, wow, like we could need to find cases of what that actually looks like. The countercultural podcast of five years time will be just be called independence. Independence. Yeah. And then history repeats and the circle is complete and we go into the, exactly. the, the new chapter of, yeah. Exactly. The, the pendulum, the pendulum kind of the, yeah, the sort of Damocles swings. Um, yeah. Awesome. Okay, look, Jacob, it's been super wonderful. Thanks for being so generous with your time. There's a lot to chew on here. We'll stick links in the blah, 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 whatever. And if history repeats itself, I mean, your, the essay, the, what's the title of the essay again? The medium. Crypto Media. Crypto, that was, it, it explained so much and was foreshadowing so much that happened in the year that followed it. I'm I'm imagining that this essay will probably have a similar impact. I, I absolutely, and I, and I genuinely hope, I think, whether or not it comes from you all or from anybody listening, I generally hope that the hyperstructure checklist ends up being a thing in the world. I think that that would be really, really cool mm-hmm. and really instructive for people. Awesome. I hope so. Maybe we'll, we'll reconvene in a year from time and I'm just completely crazy. Either are fine. <laughs> we'll see how it plays out. No, I don't think so. I think, I think it's, a, it's a necessary intervention and I'm grateful for it. So thank you so much. Best of luck. I hope you're staying warm. And yeah, this has been... <laughs> Enjoying the novelty of your first winter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yep. And yeah, bye. Bye. Thanks, Holly. Thanks, Matt. See ya. Happy